Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I'm your host today as we experience NIMSI Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribed to NIMSI Insights or following us on your platform of choice. We are coming to you live on LinkedIn primarily today, but also simultaneously streaming to Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And YouTube, of course, is where all of our past episodes are archived, so you can go check out lots of good resources there at the NIMSI Insights YouTube channel. Uh, without further ado, this is a double feature today. I just got done talking to Marina Alari of Terra Translations, and so this is my second podcast of the day. So I'm going to spare you guys all of the shameless plugs that I typically would subject you to and dive right into the topic here today. Today, we are talking to MemoQ, or Mark Schreiner, I should say, from MemoQ. MemoQ has recently announced a strategic investment into MemoQ RFP Inc., a U.S.-based corporation that is developing the next-generation RFP response platform. The investment encompasses a significant cash infusion coupled with a technology licensing agreement that harnesses the capabilities of the existing MemoQ technology. MemoQ's decision to invest in MemoQ RFP aligns with the rising demand for innovative request for proposal or RFP response tools. The RFP response tool market is projected to be valued at approximately 200 US dollars and 200 million US dollars annually with an impressive growth rate of 15 to 20% per year. This market includes a spectrum of related documents such as requests for information or RFI, security questionnaires, ISO and SOC2 certification and industry specific credential audit documents, all of which necessitate the creation of fresh content while also benefiting from the efficient reuse of previously generated and approved content. My guest today is Mark Schreiner. Mark has had a long and varied career. He has served as CEO in Asia Pacific, Managing Director Asia, President and General Manager. He has had profit and loss responsibility for operations throughout APAC and in North America. He has rapidly scaled and built high-performance business development and operation teams. He is currently the Strategic Sales Director for MemoQ and co-founder and CEO of the latest venture backed by MemoQ, MemoQ RFP, which we are going to be talking about today within the context of the larger request for proposal process. Uh, MemoQ RFP was established in June 2023 to develop a more efficient way to respond to RFPs and other important business questionnaires. The company leverages lessons learned and the application of technology developed by MemoQ, a leading translation management system provider. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, Tucker. Thanks for having me on. Good. I know hey, you, I, you've done so much through your career. Writing an intro for you is kind of hard. <laughs> I, I, somebody has been stalking my LinkedIn profile, man, but uh, good job. Yeah. I got to say, I think this is my first live event. And so, like, we're really live right now, right? Oh, yeah, we're so live. I, I just like, ah, people are going to see it. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're live. So, um, uh, yeah. cool. careful. Watch your mouth. Uh, yes, exactly. Hey, so, and then let me just ask you, your backdrop, is that, what is that? That's awesome, man. Oh, this, this, this is my living room. <laughs> man, I am so jealous. It's all. Jane. I just got a wall. That's, That's it. all right. That's all right. Yeah. So, it's, you know, the, the, the advantages of living alone is I get to decide my living room the way I want. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I'm taking notes, man. 
Well, so. today we're talking about um, MemoQ RFP, and this was just mm -hmm. recently announced. Press releases are flying everywhere around it, and I just recently got a chance to kind of dive in and read more about it. And I was particularly interested in this because I don't know if you know this, but in my career, I've frequently been the RFP guy. Oh, and lucky you. Yeah, lucky me. <laughs> the, the thing is, responding to RFPs is something that all companies have to do, at least companies that serve clients, which I can't think of anybody that doesn't. But all companies have to do this. It, it's a very neat skill set, though. It's it, it's really hard to find a decent RFP writer, and the best RFP writers that I know really don't like responding to RFPs. <laughs> it's not something. Well, usually, what makes them a good RFP writer makes them good at other things too. So it's not necessarily the best use of their time. But there are some best practices around responding to RFPs that that I've come across in my career. And one of those is leveraging past content. The more RFPs you respond to, the more content that you can, can leverage for future RFPs. And that's kind of what MemoQ RFP uh, intends to do or is doing, I should say. And what's interesting to me is the fact that you're leveraging the existing technology from MemoQ, which is translation management system, in order to do that. So maybe I'll shut up and just let you give a quick introduction to, to what you're doing here. Sure. Um, so thank you for that. And, but I'm going to take a step back. Mm. Um, Please. So I think most people know what RFPs are, request for, for proposal. You have RFIs, request for information, and so on. Um, but just make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, a lot of companies, when they want to go out and procure services or technology, they will create a short list of vendors and mm -hmm. then they will create a questionnaire and they'll send it out to those vendors and say, uh, you know, please fill this out. That would be the RFI or the RFQ, excuse me, the, R the RFP. Um, and then what happens though, is they're asking questions about, you know, the company establishment, the finances, your HR policies, your diversity, equity, inclusion, your corporate governance. Um, they're asking about your security for your, both the company and then the platform, if it's a technology, uh, they're going to ask about, um, the features of, of your tool or services. And there's no one person in the company that can answer all those questions. Right. So typically what you do is you have. Um, a business development manager would say, hey, I've got this RFP. And then they run around the company trying to find people to kind of complete their specific area of expertise on that well, question. And typically that goes to shit really quick yeah. because you're asking a BDM, a salesperson to project manage a process. And yeah, what makes salespeople, that's, that's a no -go. You're, you're a salesperson, <laughs> I'm a project manager. We can be honest here. Like salespeople yeah. sometimes aren't the best project managers and vice versa, to be fair, right? So totally. that, that can go south real quick. Well, then, and then yeah, exactly. And then what happens is um, oftentimes they'll find the right uh, subject matter expert, let's say for the product features or the security or finance. And the person will be like, dude, I just responded to something very similar a month ago or two months ago. And it gets to be very annoying. Yep. Um, we had, we had one uh, uh, coworker who described the process as soul crushing because you're just repeating and very repetitive. It's like, well, you know, what, why are my efforts going to waste? So, um, you know, what happened is at, at MemoQ, we had these same challenges, you know, we were getting more and more RFPs every year. And Peter and Balaj, our, our two co-CEOs, mm -hmm. asked me, said, Mark, could you look at this process and see if there's a way that we could, you know, optimize it? And I interviewed a bunch of my, my colleagues. And one of them, uh, Philip, who now runs our business services, he said, you know, I think there's a way that we could use a certain 
part of Memocue's technology to, you know, leverage past responses and then reuse them or give the, um, the manager or the, the person who's, who's uh, fulfilling the RFP the option to kind of modify the information, just like, you know, using a translation memory. Right. And so if I worked on the process optimization, Philip worked on the technology, and, um, and then we kind of we can, uh, collaborated for a few months and we, we developed the process and the use of the tool. And the results have been amazing. I mean, for example, 60 to 70% reduction in um, the effort to complete an RFP, wow. uh, 60 to 70% reuse of, of, of previously used answers. Um, but then we were also able to take that and integrate it with an MT engine because we've done RFPs in the last year in, of course, English, um, uh, French for Canada, uh, Italian, Finnish, Spanish, German. And it's, it's, so we, we were able to kind of take that one part of the technology, integrate it with another. And at some point it was like, you know, we could probably productize this. Mm -hmm. And this is something that allows us to take born in the local industry technology and, and take it outside of the local industry. Because like, as you said earlier, pretty much every B2B company out there um, has to respond to RFPs. Yeah. Yeah, and you already have kind of an existing client base too, because if you're, you're working with a bunch of LSPs and LSPs respond to RFPs. They do. Right? And I, I as I mentioned, I've, I've responded to a few RFPs in my <laughs> career, both at NIMSY and pre, I, shoot, I wrote an RFP last week, right? And it was, it took me all day. I, I did it in one day. I just hunkered down and did it. Did I do a great job? Probably not. I probably should have <laughs> taken more time, but it was due that day. So I responded mm -hmm. to it. It took me all day, all just all of my attention, the whole thing. And the only reason I was able to do it is because I had responded to five or six previous RFPs that were asking for the same service. So right. I was able to leverage a lot of that content, but still it was a very manual process. And I, I didn't have a tool that that would have done a lot of that heavy lifting for me and 60s to 70 and i almost didn't respond to this rfp because just because of the time investment i'm busy i've got other stuff that i need to right. work on right and so i almost didn't respond to it just because of the time investment so when you're telling me that you're seeing like a 60 70 percent reduction in the effort required to respond to an rfp what I hear is that means I can respond to more RFPs because in the initial, both at NIMSY and pre-NIMSY and working in past lives, the first thing you do when you get an RFP is you sit down and you kind of do that back of the napkin cost benefit analysis. Does it make sense? Does it make sense? Invest our effort into doing this. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and I'm not going to invest my effort. And so I'm going to look like, do they have a strong incumbent? How long have they mm -hmm. been working with that incumbent? Um, how much pain are they? So I'm going to vet it to say, how likely are they going to, to pick my RFP? Because let's be real, sometimes clients issue RFPs not because they're looking for a new vendor, just because procurement policy says that every two years they need to issue an RFP. I don't want to waste my time responding to that. However, if I had an auto automation system or semi-automation system in place, I could still respond to those. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, more efficient way to response allows you to go after more RFP RFPs and win more business. Um, and, you know, it's funny, though. You were at our MemoQ day in Seattle. Um, you gave an excellent presentation. Um, one of your, um, one of the other speakers, he's the CEO of an LSP. He uh, started his pre presentation by lamenting about the fact that he had just spent six hours 
um, responding to a security questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it's not just RFPs. I mean, six hours of a COO's time yeah. to fill out a questionnaire when you when you probably have all that information in some form or another. You've answered those questions before. Yes. Right. Yeah. You've answered those questions before. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, usually the CIO, CTO, CFO, CEE, these are the people that you have to bug to get the answers because they're the only people in the in the whole company that either have the knowledge or have the authority to sign off mm -hmm. on something. So it's not something that you can delegate down. No, you're right. Um, you know, you said you, you've responded to quite a few different RFPs. And, and if we just come back to the local industry, um, did you did you see any difference, for example, between technology RFPs and service RFPs? Uh, well, the majority of just full disclosure, the majority of RFPs I'm responding to are for for service RFPs. But mm -hmm. I can imagine the technology RFPs have a lot more about like technical um, requirements, yeah. secure yeah. infosec. My, the the least favorite thing that I, <laughs> I I like responding to is these questions about infosec. They're asking. Mm -hmm. Or worse, you win an RFP, they didn't ask you about the InfoSec, and then you win it, and then in order to get onboarded as a vendor, you have to fill out these InfoSec questionnaires. And there More are questionnaires. More, More questionnaires. questionnaires. <laughs> yeah, so it goes beyond the RFP. You win the contract, and then, hey, here's some more questions that you have to answer in order to get onboarded by our vendor management portal or whatever. And it's asking questions like, this doesn't even apply to me, <laughs> right? There's acronyms in here that I don't even know. And when I Google them, Google doesn't even know. Um, are you blah, blah, blah certified? Well, shoot, I don't know, right? And those can be super intimidating because for a vendor who hasn't been around the block, um, it can be super intimidating because it's like, I don't know how to respond to this. So therefore I'm gonna disqualify myself and not even respond to this RFP, right? And the chances are, if you've been working for a company that's been around for a little while, you've responded to RFPs in the past, that you've answered that question. And even if you're not blah, blah, blah certified, you have a standard response to that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, one of the questions that gets asked a lot is, you know, are you SOC 2 certified? Right. And, and a lot of companies will say, well, we're SOC 2 compliant or we, we adhere to all the SOC 2 guidelines. Right. You know? These yeah. non-answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's when I have my RFP writer hat on, right? You yep. know, which is kind of slash marketing RFP writer. Um, you can get creative because typically the people that are evaluating the RFP yeah. don't give, they don't care. They, they don't want, care about that. Check that box. Check the box. Yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. a that's just a box to check that was forced upon them by their procurement department, and it was forced upon the procurement department by the infosec department, and the people that are actually sitting down reviewing the art, the proposals and making a decision on which vendor to hire, they really don't care about these things. Yeah. So it, it's not something that I, when consulting on RFP writing, which we do a bit of here at NMZ Insights, we help people write RFPs, or write both we help clients write rfps which by the way quick plug for that service from nimsy insights if if you're a client-side localization department and you're going to rfp i would recommend reaching out for help i don't care if it's from nimsy i don't care if it's from somebody else just because i've responded to so many less than ideal rfps out there that uh, you know i'm trying not to sound too judgmental here but let's uh, be real the rfps are not asking the right questions mm -hmm. and to me that is a huge it's a tragedy because if you're not asking the right questions you're not going to get the right answers and you're not going to make the right decision 
and you're going through this entire painful process, but you're not getting the results that you could have if you had just spent a few hours talking to a consultant or getting some help writing that RFP, right? Um, but yeah, I kind of lost track. That's all right. I mean, an another thing that happens in the industry, and some people consider this a best practice, um, mm -hmm. and of course, if you're not the the um, consultant partner, you probably not like this practice, but um, a lot of companies, they will they will have their preferred vendor yep. and um, and they will have their vendor help them draft the RFP. Oh, yeah. so the RFP perfectly aligns with their offering. That, that's a and great again, position to be in if you're yeah, that vendor. Yeah. It, it, that's the, the most powerful is if you can say, hey, um, just like you just said, but, you know, in a little bit different context, we can come in and help you write, write this RFP. Um, and, you know, the odds are then you're going to look pretty darn good um, when they come to evaluating it. Well, yeah, it's like, uh, I'm sure you've come across these RFPs that are like, Tell us about your experience using Global Site. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> Global Site is a what is that? Moravia, we localize. I forget they all blur together now. But it's like that that's a proprietary tool for my competitor. So right. yeah, <laughs> I'm probably not gonna respond to this RFP because it's pretty clear who you're Where going they to pick. Go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, I, I guess you know, another thing that we're looking at is how to kind of help with the creative process because the you know, putting previously used responses into a database and, and, and then kind of serving them up in the appropriate place at the appropriate time is one part of this. Um, and then again, linking in the MT for, for multilingual uh, RFPs is another part. But another thing that we're looking at is, I mean, I don't know if you saw the announcement, but MemoQ just uh, launched or uh, filed for a patent for something called MemoQ AGT. Oh, there you go, right? And, um, you know, imagine, and that's all based upon taking your linguistic assets and using them in a way that can rapidly train the, the machine translation engine. Well, RFP engine, same, similar kind of situation. If we can take your, uh, your, your, your URL and then any documents, whether they're publicly facing or uh, internal documents that you want to include in terms of your RFP assets, or security questionnaire assets, et cetera, then we can use those to help you write um, better answers, okay, using this type of, uh, of technology, which I think you, you mentioned earlier, part of the deal with MemoQ is it's not just the, the investment, it's also um, a licensing of, of, of some of the te key technology. Yeah, so let me, let me understand if I get this correctly. So, not only, so what we're talking about first and foremost is MemoQ RFP. It's essentially a database, much in the same way that a translation memory is a database of previous responses to RFPs that's going to help you more efficiently write answers to new RFPs by leveraging those past um, proposals. And this is taking it one step further by saying we can also train an engine a language model based upon your existing assets. So I can feed it with my website, all of my blog contents, all of our case studies, all of our past proposals, all this stuff, and train a language model so that it can help me more efficiently write answers to new questions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could go to ChatGPT and ask it a question, but ChatGPT is only going to be able to leverage the public available, publicly available information that it, it has access to, right? Right. Um, if you want a more focused, higher quality uh, response, then you would um, create a, you know, like I said, a pool of assets that are very um, specific to your organization. And those could be like information about, you know, your security uh, 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 policies. It could be information about, you know, the corporate history, the background, all that stuff. 
Um, and again, it's just giving it the right information and then, and then it helps you draft the response. A lot of people, I mean, and we're kind of going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but you know, writing is a, is a partially as a creative response. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people are using these large language models and tools like chat GPT sometimes as inspiration. They're not simply just saying, uh, you know, I'm going to copy this, but they're saying, you know, what are the things that I should include? Right. And if we can, you know, ideally what we're going to do is say, based upon the database, here's the answer we have. And this one is what we would call like a fuzzy response or a 100%. Um, but based upon the linguistic assets that we are, we, um, that the AI site part of the tool would be, uh, be able to offer um, a, maybe a, a newer, fresher response. You know, it's funny because I know, I know you, you enjoy writing and I've, and I've read uh, the book that you co-authored with Renato um, and, you know, you're a very creative person. A lot of people in an organization, you know, if you're the guy that's, you know, running the security team or the head of finance, probably don't have the time or inclination to get all creative on your responses. Right. Okay. We have certain people at, at MemoQ, for example, Richard Sykes, he's an amazing writer, right? And he understands the technology, but he's also able to package the responses in a really nice right. way. A lot well, of people can't do that. And a but lot a of times you can help you. A tool can help. Yeah. And a lot of times you're not incentivized to do that. Right. right so right. like going back to the, for lack of a better term, the bullshit responses that you give. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, are you certified in blah, blah, blah technology? Sometimes you're not, you have no desire to be, you have no plan to be, but you still have to respond to the question. Right. If I send that to my CIO, then he's going to respond and say, nope, we're not. And therefore we're, I'm not giving you a response period. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I don't want my name associated with this. Right. Um, so a lot of times those technical experts, they get too focused in the technical and lose sight of the bigger picture, which is no, well, we need to have a response to this. So how, how do I phrase it, my response to say like, we are compliant with these standards, but we're not certified, um, in a way that's not going to get your, your proposal rejected. Totally. Let me ask you, because you said you do, you do training uh, to help companies either uh, draft or write an RFP. So they're going to use that RFP to, as a procurement tool. Yep. Um, do, you, do, do you also uh, help companies to respond to RFPs? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So in, in, what, you know, in what areas do you guide them? Well, a lot of the stuff like what we're just talking about, and a lot of it is just a confidence thing. Um, especially we work with a lot of like medium sized companies that maybe they haven't, they don't have a long history of responding to RFPs because RFPs are the domain of larger accounts, right? The, like these really complex RFPs. And if you're a mid-sized LSP that has grown organically and you're continuing to grow and now you're starting to come across all of these different RFPs, you just don't know, don't even know how to go about it. You don't, don't know the process. You don't know the format, let's just say, of how to go about it. You don't know that you can use what I call bullshit answers in, in an RFP. So a lot of it's just understanding how to respond to those different questions because the questions that have easy clear-cut answers to people generally don't need help with those fair enough fair enough um i you know it's funny because you said that it tends to be maybe larger organizations who are writing rfps and putting them out and asking for responses um it's also the government a lot um, many government agencies are a whole different ball game (laughs) right like public versus private sector rfps are it's they're similar, but, and that's what I was responding to last week was a government RFP. It's a whole different ball game, 
of how, how you respond. Right. Well, it's just, it's so easy to get marked non-compliant or non uh, unresponsive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't dot an I or cross the T or you put a cover, you forget the cover sheet or you submit one file instead of four files or you don't name it properly. The mm-hmm. government can very quickly come in and just say, nope, this is unresponsive and we're not even going to read it. And now I've spent a week responding to something that is not even going to see the light of day. It's not even going to be read by somebody. Right. So there's a very strict, I would say, procedure to that. Um, Things like with the government RFP, it doesn't need to like if I'm submitting an RFP to uh, a client, you know, a a, a private non-governmental agency, I want to make sure the RFP is formatted correctly. I'm going to make sure it's branded correctly. I'm going to make sure that's where I'm going to prioritize. Like what is the user experience of the person reviewing this RFP? For a government RFP, they don't care about user experience. They just want it put into the format that they want it put into, and who cares what font you use, as long as it's 12-point single-spaced, right? Because God forbid you go against that, right? But I would say the what's nice about the government RFPs is typically, in my experience, they have a better track record of asking the right questions that -hmm. they need to make their decisions because they know how they're going to make their decision to have like a scoring criteria of 20% of your score. It's very objective, quote unquote, like 20% of your score is based on cost. 30% is based upon your prior work history. 30% is based upon uh, the process, the work plan that you submit, whatever it may be. So they know exactly going into it, what are the scoring criteria and how is it going to be evaluated? And they ask more targeted questions based upon that. So in a way it can kind of make it easier to respond to. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and one thing I, I would, if we want to come back to best practices that um, not everybody is aware of is a lot of times in these, these RFPs or other questionnaires, there can be some ambiguous or confusing questions. Most companies that are, are running an RFP will give you a window uh, that you can ask questions for clarifying questions. Right. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of it for a couple of reasons. One, every time that you can touch base with a customer, that's a, a, just kind of strengthening that relationship. Yep. Two, it, th- those clarifications are incredibly important and you may find out some key information like, you know, this feature is critical or these features aren't that important. Um, and that all, that all helps with your response as well. The, uh, the other thing that can be kind of um, maddening with RFPs is the transparency that you would just reference in terms of what is their actual dis- factors or criteria for making a decision. And, you know, and, and if you don't know, it's hard because like, where should we focus on? What's, right. what, you know, what is the, That's and, what I and, like about the government RFPs is yeah. that you know how you're going to be graded. Whereas oftentimes if you're submitting to some Silicon Valley company, you don't know. And the reality is they don't know. The reality is they're going to pick the vendor that they want to work with. Yeah, oftentimes. Um, the, the one thing that we're doing, this is now MemoQ, not MemoQ RFP, but MemoQ as a company is doing that's really been helpful is more closely tracking our participation with all RFPs and RFIs and then uh, tracking you know, the wins and the losses, but also whenever possible, the reasons for the win or the loss. Uh, because, you know, again, when you have this approach where a BDM comes in and runs around and gets the information and completes it, there's no centralized kind of process to track the results. And those results are really informative in terms of, you know, 
potential uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, etc. Right. And, and I'm, I'm trying to find here, just as we were talking, I remembered there is, if you are, well, if you're a NIMSY client and interested in either writing an RFP or responding to an RFP, reach out to us, of course. Um, but if not, we have some publicly available resources out there, and I'll try to find links to them and put them in the chat. We have a whole write-up on how to optimize the RFP process, which probably awesome. needs to be updated now that Mark Schreiner is changing the, the game with RFP tools. Um, and there's also a workshop available that I'm going to find and link in the comments here where we talk all about RFPs. As well. Awesome, man. Well, I, I would like to see that. Um, is, you know, I'm like in sponge mode right now and uh, never thought that I'd want to be an RFP subject matter expert, but it's fascinating, man, because it's like a huge, huge hundreds of billions of dollars of business are transacted through through these, this process. And if you can understand it and get a competitive edge, good for you. Um, well, and it's maybe... a lot, there, there's a whole niche industry out there. I mean, there's people that are proposal writers. Oh, yeah. That you can hire the consultants. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with those people. Uh, I have clients that have worked with those people. And it's nice to have someone like that on board because they're not intimidated by the RFP process. It's what they do. It's their bread and butter. And they know they know the process. But it can also be very challenging because the expectations are sometimes misaligned. Like if I hire a proposal writer, I expect them to write a proposal. Um, in reality, what they do sometimes is more taking on that project management function because they don't know anything about your company, right? So right. you're still going to end up responding to and writing a bunch of stuff and they're just kind of project managing it and putting it together. And they're also, they're not cheap. They're not cheap. So unless you're bidding on really large RFPs, the cost benefit sometimes doesn't work out. Well, when you talk about cost too, that's, that was another reason for us to go into this space was that um, we looked at some of the off-the-shelf tools and we just thought, yeah, how wow. are they? Like, I, I haven't looked into them because well, I, I've always just used a trusty old Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, no, it's, it's, they, there are some amazing tools out there, um, you know, that allow, that, that, that will detect the document type, create, you know, the questionnaire on, on you know, on a web UI, um, pre-populate the answers, similar to the direction we're going into, but they are, these are kind of enterprise-based systems. Um, we're targeting, we're, we're targeting a, a kind of more streamlined, lighter weight approach. Definitely it's going to be uh, more competitive on, in terms of pricing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, we decided as an SME, um, this is a pretty substantial investment. And since we have this technology that we kind of use, um, why don't we go that route? And we're so happy we did. Yeah, because yeah. it was Maybe, something that you were in, you're developing internally anyways. Right? Yeah, exactly. And you're using, you're eating your own dog food. You're using it. It's working well. And then you made the decision to, hey, this works really well. Let's productize it and exactly. allow other people to use it. And then, you know, and if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, our decision to spin it off into um, another organization and then invest in that organization, I'd be happy to touch on that. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, why, why create a whole different company for this? Okay. So good question. Glad you asked. No, uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, this is what happens when a podcast host interviews a podcast host. I know, right? <laughs> it's this struggle to struggle to control the conversation. <laughs> uh, so, um we looked at it and, you know, like I, I, I go back to when you spoke at the uh, Memory Day Seattle and you, you talked about uh, 
focusing on your core competencies and not getting involved in too many different things. And I think you use the expression pruning, pruning back sometimes is really oh, yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. And um, we just looked at it as this is a, a, a product and platform that goes way beyond the localization um, space. It can, you know, any business to business enterprise out there could, could benefit from something like this. The other thing is where we're at with this, um, we're going to have to go out and I'll finish our MVP uh, and then go out and, you know, get a couple hundred customers. And then we're going to go out for Series A funding. Now, that type of organization where you're going to go out and get that Series A funding and just developing a product from scratch is very, very different from what MemoQ is, both in terms of we're going to be selling it everywhere, um, but we're also, you know, we're on a different like trajectory. So it just seemed to make sense to us to create a, a Delaware-based corporation and go the um, the traditional, you know, seed investor, mm -hmm. um, develop that MVP, and then and go that kind of SaaS startup uh, path. Yeah, and are there any um, considerations? I mean, I can't foresee any any considerations as far as like conflict of interest or anything like that um, with existing MemoQ clients. I, I imagine a lot of the existing MemoQ solutions purchasers or clients can also benefit from this as well. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine any conflict of interest uh, because none of our customers are are in this space or do anything even close. Um, but I could imagine, like you said, some synergies. Um, we already, you know, we have a couple of, of our customers who volunteered to be beta customers, which is another thing I'd like to. Yeah, I was going to um, say, how, <laughs> what's the customer? Do you guys already have customers or? Um... So we have we have um, uh, several companies that have reached out and said, hey, we'd like to be a beta customer. Um, some of those customers or those uh, potential beta customers are in the local industry. Uh, I got to just, you know, for all transparency here, it's not as simple as just taking the uh, MemoQ code that we want and copying and pasting it into another platform. We, we, we're going to um, leverage the technology as much as possible, but we still have to do a lot of development on our own. Okay. And um, we're looking towards the end of this year, early next year, to have our first MVP out there. And at that point, we'll be um, engaging with uh, probably up to 10 beta customers. And the, the, the situation for beta customers is you get to use the tool, um, no cost to you during the development phase. And uh, we just want to have kind of interactive feedback with you. What, what's working, what's not, what okay. you want to have on it yeah, going forward. Yeah, I mean, that all sounds very reasonable. So basically, uh, you know, you if, Nim, six if months, Nimsy would like, like in on this, um, you know, I'd be happy to talk to you. I, I kind of <laughs> do want one in on this. Although, yeah. Well, what would you say the, um, like... At what point does it make sense to invest in a tool like this? Like how many RFPs do you have to be responding to and how frequently does it make sense to actually put some formalization around it? Because if I'm responding to one RFP per year, just to go that side of the, the spectrum, you know, it probably doesn't make sense to invest into technology to you know, make it more efficient. Um, the customers that you're currently working with and that you're looking to work with, tell me a little bit about that profile of what, what kind of customers would get the most value out of this? Yeah, so we're we're initially going to be targeting the small, medium-sized enterprise, you know, companies that are anywhere from a couple million dollars a year in revenues up to, say, 50, 60 million in revenues. Beyond that, companies start to have dedicated RFP teams right. or writers, um, and then they're going to look for something uh, probably, I would say, broader in terms of their enterprise RFP tool. Um, and, you know, we're not going to come out and say, hey, we can do everything that those, um, you know, existing platforms can do. That's not our approach at all. We want to do something lightweight and super easy, uh, easy to use and deliver an immediate benefit to our customers. So it's typically those smaller organizations. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, in terms of your, your question of how many a year, you know, if you're doing more than two or three a year, definitely you'd benefit from this. I mean, okay. even if you just did one a year, that following year, do you really want to go and start, you know, looking through those documents and then doing a search and then copy and paste, you know, and because no. sometimes it's not always an uh, apples to apples question. It's one not. company. It's like slightly might. different, which exactly. means you have to completely freaking rewrite it. <laughs> right. Your words, not mine. <laughs> yeah. I, I dealt with that on this latest one that I did. And I'll tell you what, chat GPT is a game changer for, oh, yeah. for so many things, but any, anything that's requiring writing content. And I've played around with using it for proposal writing myself and it really helps. Um, mm. especially you can, you can feed it with assets um to a certain extent right yeah you can you can feed it and train it with different assets and ask it to generate responses for you and that all works very good but it doesn't get you all the way there it basically gives you a starting point and it's like here i wrote these three paragraphs for you and it's like okay now i need to spend 10 minutes editing these paragraphs but that's still better than spending half an hour writing these paragraphs yeah. And one of the concerns with public facing tools like that also is if you are using, you know, you said you could share certain assets with it. If this is company proprietary or confidential right. information, you probably don't want to use something like chat GPT. You want to yeah. use. Yeah. Well, I mean, for Nimsy, like we're small, you know, compared to yeah. we're not SAP, right? Um, <laughs> we're not Forrester. So for us, it's the risk outweighs the benefit for stuff okay. like that. But if I worked for, uh, like a legit LSP, you know, we're talking 10 millions, you know, tens of yeah. millions of dollars in revenue. And I had an infosec department. There's no way they would let me use yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes for, they'll ask for, MC, uh, it's my company. So I can say, ah, screw it. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, they'll ask for like, uh, you know, confidential financial information, customer lists, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pen test results for on the security side. And these are not things that you want out there. Um, so, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but so I'm, um, when you come back to uh, the, the uses of ChatGPT and, and LLMs, I was talking to Robin Ayab at, um, at Lionbridge and um, he talked about, you know, I think it was him. He said, like, before you go into um, a sales meeting, ask ChatGPT the questions that the customer is going to ask you, and and then it would help you prep for the call. And I'm like, wow, man. I mean, I, I imagine like five years from now, all these different applications and uses of AI and LLMs that we are going to, you know, are, are going to be developed over the next few years is going to just be mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of I don't want to say scary, but it's impressive, <laughs> right? Like, I, yeah. I don't want to be an alarmist. But, you know, typically this is a cycle that our industry particularly goes through as new technology comes out. Everybody freaks out. A lot of people even leave the industry because they're convinced we're not going to have jobs in five years. And then things kind of, you know, work itself out. And it's just a cycle that we go through. But with, you know, chat GPT, large language models, generative AI, all of this new AI driven stuff that's coming out. Yeah, this is big. It's big. I'm just curious, what, what kind of uh, statistics can you cite regarding the size of or the growth or um, shrinkage of the uh, the local industry in terms of revenues and or people who actually work in the industry? Yeah. So I, I can't, without going and pulling up my databases full of facts and figures, I can't off the cuff cite all of this stuff. Um, we, of course, publish the NIMSI 100 market ranking or analysis every year. And what I can say is like, historically, the industry has always grown, 
this mm -hmm. is a growth industry, even through recessions, even through bad times, even when other industries are shrinking, the language services industry is a growth industry and that has never changed. And what I can tell you is just the chatter that is happening with the analysts for the industry is like, with the advent of all of these new technologies, we might be seeing a situation where from a revenue perspective, at least the industry is bordering, you know, going back towards stagnance, or I, I don't want to go so far as to be an alarmist and say the industry is going to start shrinking. Um, but what we're, what we're seeing is a lot of tasks that are traditionally done by localization professionals, not just linguists, but l traditional localization professionals are getting pushed into other areas, right? So therefore would not be counted as a, within like the localization industry as far as how, how it's getting, how it's gotcha. getting completed. Right. But, um, there's new opportunities as with any risk, there's new opportunities if, you know, especially it's an exciting time for people who are just entering the industry, students that are graduating, um, because there's a whole bunch of new, um, job functions and roles and mm -hmm. technologies to master. And those are the people that are going to have a competitive edge. Tech man, forward. just whatever field you're in, learn the tools, learn the tools yep. and, and, and the, the upcoming upstream technology. Um, I tell you a quick story in terms of the resiliency. My perspective of the resiliency of this industry is I joined this industry in 2008. Okay. 2008 was the huge financial crisis, right? And I joined it um, working for CLS in Asia. CLS, about 70 to 80% of our customers were in the banking sector. And you know, <laughs> people were worried. Yep. But, um, and I was in four years there that our business in Asia grew 500%. Yep. So, and, and, and what was driving that was the banks were looking for new markets for their products. Mm -hmm. Okay. And to get their new markets, whether you're a Chinese bank like Citix and you want investors in Canada to buy, to invest in your funds, or if you are UBS and you want Chinese investors to invest in your funds or credit Swiss, whatever you need to get your fund information into their language, yeah. right? Your equity research into their language. And so, I mean, even though it was a financial crisis and the banks were hurting, we just, I mean, we were on a terror for, for four years while, yeah. while I was there. Yeah. And, that, and that's why we say the language industry is a growth industry. You know, what, mm -hmm. what we say at NIMSY is, you know, in good times we translate contracts and bad times we translate lawsuits, <laughs> but there's always something to translate. Right. And I think right now the bigger, influence i'm not going to say threat but bigger influence in on our industry in 2023 is and i don't want to debate are we in a recession are we not in a recession blah 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 but especially in the tech sector which a big chunk of our industry services mm -hmm. especially like the known industry you know the the folks that go to the local world conferences and stuff yeah. like that because there's a ton of stuff being done out there that by people that have never even heard of local world Right. Those yep. aren't the people I'm talking about, but especially like in the tech sector, there's been a lot of layoffs and it's coming from the client side in mm -hmm. 2023, especially towards the beginning of this year. And that has really had a trickle down effect. Um, mm -hmm. If budgets are drying up on the client side, team sizes are drying up on the client side, then the LSPs are going to be receiving less work. The freelancers are going to be receiving less work. All, all of that rolls downhill. But what we've seen here, and this is just an anecdotal, I'm, I'm not, I don't have spreadsheets to back this up, but what I've seen is companies are starting to reinvest. I think the pendulum's starting to bring back 
um, swing back in the other way. And I think a lot of the layoffs that happened in tech and in localization and a bunch of other places earlier this year were were warranted. I think there was a lot of bloat in in tech and in our industry. And now that they've kind of made those cuts, they're starting to realize, okay, how do we can how do we get back on a growth trajectory here? So I'm pretty optimistic for 2024. Long story well, short. yeah, I mean, you and I are both in the Seattle area here and, you know, we have Amazon and we have Microsoft yep. and Amazon had, and AWS had um, pretty extensive layoffs, yep. uh, but things have, have calmed down and both yep. of their stock prices have done very, very well. Uh, and so, you know, and I look outside, it's, uh, it seems to be that things are kind of, you know, like you said, trending, trending in the, hopefully in the right direction. Yeah. But, uh, knock on wood. That's knock on wood. Mark and Tucker's well, projections for the industry. Exactly. Um, well, hey, Tucker, I, you know, thank you so much for having me on here. And uh, maybe, you know, in a, in a couple months uh, when we're ready to go with our, with our MVP, um, I can uh, touch base with you then. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you around town at one of the uh, local events. I love it. I love interviewing other podcast hosts because you just lead me directly into the intro or the outro. You're just like, all right, we're done. We're done. Mark, always a pleasure. Slug, Wednesday night. Seattle Localization User Group, Wednesday night. Panel discussion discussion on AI. We have people from Microsoft, from uh, uh, Adam Bittlangmeyer from uh, Modelfront, and some other distinguished uh, panelists. So it's going to be a great event. Good show. So if you're in the Seattle area, make sure to go check that out. All right, I'll take us out here. Ladies, gentlemen, chat, if you're out of time, we are out of time today. If you enjoyed this NIMSY Live experience, make sure to go subscribe or follow NIMSY Insights on LinkedIn so that you can be notified when we go live again. We've got some events already on the calendar. I appreciate our guests today, Mark Schreiner. I appreciate all my colleagues here at NIMSY Insights, and I appreciate everybody in our industry who is contributing to industry research that we can publish for the benefit of everybody. And finally, I appreciate you, all everybody in audience joining us in chat and making this a true live event rather than just a video podcast. And I look forward to next time. Cheers.